everyone, and welcome to Story and Star Wars. I'm Alistair Stevens. After a break of a few weeks, it is finally time to rouse ourselves from our winter slumber. Discuss The Force Awakens. It's been a long time coming, I admit, and I apologize for that, though. It's been nothing like the 10 years since Revenge of the Sith, or the 32 years since Return of the Jedi, so there's that, at least. Let's begin with some disclaimers and some clarifications. I am going to, over the course of this lecture, discuss every detail of The Force Awakens. I will spoil everything. If you haven't yet seen the movie, please don't listen to this lecture. It really will ruin what is, I believe, a genuinely great Star Wars film. I have also kept myself insulated from the new Expanded Universe material, so I'm not going to refer to anything beyond the frame of the film. There may be, I'm sure there are, details in the new novels and in the new comic books that are being released that will shine a light upon The Force Awakens, but if we've learned anything over the last few years, it's that nothing is canon, nothing is true, until it's appeared on the screen. So expect full and detailed spoilers of the movie, but nothing at all about the extra-textual expanded universe materials. So let's get to it. During the first live session in this series, after we'd discussed the original trilogy, but before we'd moved on to the prequels, I talked a little about the first major trailer that had been released for The Force Awakens. Specifically, I talked about how excited I was about a single line from that trailer, Han Solo responding to some plucky-looking young woman about whom I knew nothing, says with heartbreaking sincerity, It's true. All of it. The dark side. The Jedi. They're real. I said at the time that I was excited by the line, not just because of what it suggested about the state of the Star Wars universe 30 years after the fall of the Empire, but also because it suggested the approach that Lawrence Kasdan and J.J. Abrams were taking. Star Wars was a story that mattered to us, that meant something to us, and we don't need stories to be literally true in order for them to be emotionally true or important. I hoped, I believed, that this line in this trailer was their recognition of that fact. What happened, happened. What mattered, mattered. You weren't wrong to believe it. No matter the disappointments and the distractions of the intervening years, you weren't wrong to feel it. That's what a good story can do, and we here at Bad Robot Productions, they seem to be saying, are not going to reinterpret or reinvent or make you feel silly for loving the things that you loved. The notions of true and real are powerful when we're talking about stories and about myths. And I took Han Solo's line, which rang through that trailer like a bell, as a good, good sign, a gesture of faith in what had been lost or forgotten or overlooked in the prequel trilogy, and dulled by the passage of the years. Not as we've discussed in these lectures before that the prequel trilogy is completely without worth or completely without merit, but they never felt, really, like Star Wars. They looked too closely at the details, and they missed, too often, the big picture. The Force Awakens, I am pleased to say, is the big picture. The Force Awakens is the biggest picture. Nothing for me has felt this much like Star Wars since The Empire Strikes Back. And like many Star Wars fans in the 1980s and the 1990s, I pulled apart novels and comic books and video games with reckless abandon, trying to find my own one-quarter portion of that Star Wars goodness. So I'm attuned to the subtleties of that indefinable sensation. The Force Awakens is 
as I tweeted when I left the movie theater after seeing it for the first time, the real deal, capital R, capital D. That is not to say that it is a perfect film. And there are certainly some choices that were made and some paths that were taken that are vulnerable to some measure of criticism. I'll hit some bullet points on that at the end of the lecture. But it cleared the first hurdle, scaled the first wall with an agility that seemed effortless. But if you know where to look in the movie, it becomes clear that it wasn't effortless at all. It was, in fact, an act of genuine affection for a series that has clearly meant a great deal to everyone involved. And that effort, that skill, that dedication, that self-awareness leaves us with a movie that feels true, that feels real, that feels authentic. This is Star Wars. We'll get to that. <laughs> Let me say first that the most technical analysis of the structure and the craft of this movie is going to have to wait until the DVD release, when I can watch the movie again another dozen times, where I can check time codes, check specific editing choices, really dig into the movie, and yes, in answer to the wonderful emails I've received, there will be more from Story and Star Wars in the future. I'll discuss my plans a little at the end of the lecture. So the close textual reading will necessarily have to wait. This is more of a first-pass, open-interpretation kind of lecture designed to highlight the things that I found most interesting about the craft and the art of the script and of the production. The movie shakes out broadly into three acts, Jakku and the various misadventures on and above that planet, then the Millennium Falcon, the freighter Erevana, and Maz Kanata's cantina-like castle on Tokodana. Finally, we have the briefing scene at the Rebel base, doing what briefing scenes at Rebel bases usually do, and locking the conflict for the third act, which consists of the assault on the Starkiller, the rescue of Rey, and the showdown with Kylo Ren. Then we have our epilogue with Luke, which we'll talk about separately. So, three acts. Jakku, the Falcon and Maz Kanata, the Starkiller base. What's immediately striking about that structure is how neatly each act belongs to a single character. The first act is about Finn, the second is Han, the third is Rey. Or, I guess more specifically, the first act deals not just with Finn, but with his emergence from years of conditioning and discipline, his first step into a larger world. The second act looks at Han's recovery of the Falcon, the resolution of his latest and last deal gone wrong, and his decision to stop hiding and face the pain of the past with, of course, tragic and inevitable consequence. In the last act, we see the resolution of the primary conflict, but we also see Rey coming into her own, not just through the discovery of her Jedi skills, her Force attunement, but through the realization that someone cared enough about her to come back, that she has discovered a home and a cause. I'm sure you're running ahead of me to the conclusion here, but let me say it anyway. In each act, in each case, we're dealing with an awakening. Finn awakes from oppression and from tyranny. Han awakes from a self-imposed retreat into old habits following the loss of his son. Rey awakes from loneliness and from need, as well as recognizing her innate sensitivity to the Force. And this idea of awakening is powerful for us, too, as the audience. One of the great powers of good fiction is the ability to rouse and to refresh our ability to see, to feel, to experience. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien referred to as recovery, the ability of great fiction to strip away our jaded and cynical worldly cares and open us up once more to wonder. And that's not nothing. 
That's why there are kids in the world who genuinely love the pod race sequence in The Phantom Menace, while those of us who saw it first with adult eyes may have been left cold. Recovering the purity of experience is an enormously important and fleeting thing, and we can only achieve it when we feel secure, when we feel ourselves to be in the safe hands of a skilled and competent storyteller. We're going to look at each of our protagonist stories in turn and see where they lead us and how they work, but before we do, we need to look a little at the galaxy that The Force Awakens presents to us, and how the landscape of the movie, in the broadest possible sense, invites us to understand the story that we're being told. It's immediately tempting, it is perhaps inevitable, that we look at the First Order as being the Empire, and we look at the Resistance as being the Rebel Alliance. That's a dynamic that we understand, a dynamic which draws clean lines between good and evil. And it's certainly a dynamic which is emphasized by some of the production details of the film. Not just the appearance and the design of various elements, but the music, the framing, the feel. When we get to Dakar, the resistance base in the Illinium system, the sense of space and air and movement couldn't be more clearly opposed to the claustrophobic precision of the First Order ships. And of course, it doesn't hurt that it feels like Yavin 4, that it feels, in a sense, like Hoth. On the other hand, the First Order marshals TIE fighters and a Star Destroyer, Kylo Ren's command shuttle is immediately reminiscent of the Imperial shuttles we know so well, and there's the small detail of their brand new big and shiny Death Star. So how does that fit with our understanding of the galaxy? The Empire, after all, was defeated. The New Republic, after all, did arise. Why is there in this galaxy, at this time, a resistance? Why isn't the Republic fleet, which is explicitly mentioned in the script, simply marshaled against the First Order, this remnant of the Empire? On the one hand, yes, it would be disingenuous to ignore the references that are being made to the original trilogy, to A New Hope, to Return of the Jedi. These references are too numerous, too specific, too resonant to heedlessly catalogue here, though I'm sure there are websites dedicated to exactly that all over the internet. Many critics have taken The Force Awakens to task for being a reboot of A New Hope. It's fair to say, too, many fans have celebrated The Force Awakens as being a reboot of A New Hope. But I think that fundamentally misses the point. This isn't a retelling of the same story, because this story can only work in the shadow of the former. It's connected from the old-world rust spots on the hull of the Falcon to the deepest symbols of thematic intent, but it isn't heedless repetition. It isn't the same just to be the same. This is also, we should note, the first post-Star Wars Star Wars. When George Lucas returned to Star Wars for the special editions first of all, and then for the prequel trilogy, he was returning not as a fan, but as the author, an author who felt an obvious need to compensate for some of the work that he'd done in the past. Abrams is the first fan who has been inspired by the Star Wars series, moved by the Star Wars series, and then stepped into a creative role. And it's no coincidence that the film reflects the passing of this generational torch in its preoccupation with parents and children. Though, as previously mentioned, even that theme, or I guess set of closely entwined minor themes, does double duty, reflecting both the in-universe Star Wars canon preoccupation with fathers and sons, while also offering a new perspective on it, 
and applying the theme metatextually, offering a perspective on the creation of the movie, on the telling of this story. J.J. Abrams, in a sense, we all, in a sense, are the children of Star Wars. And that's what it comes down to. Because in a way, The Force Awakens is a Star Wars story about Star Wars stories. It's about the telling of legends and the way that they evolve from generation to generation. We'll look closely at the more important aspects of this idea later when we get to Luke, but for now, consider the sense that these characters have of their own place in a story, in their own story. Amidst legends that they didn't know were true, amidst consciously constructive narratives about the First Order, about the Republic, about the stories we tell ourselves about our families coming back for us. At a fundamental level, The Force Awakens rests upon a sure understanding of what Star Wars is and means, and it tells its story in that space. It must tell its story in that space. It can only tell its story in that space. You don't necessarily need to have seen the first six movies to be carried along by the action and by the plot, but this could only have been the seventh Star Wars film. And that's not new, of course, because Star Wars, like any good myth, has always had a certain preoccupation with its own retelling, with its own textuality, and an awareness of the inherent power myths have to move and to inspire the audience. Think of Obi-Wan telling stories to Luke on Tatooine, or, better yet, think of 3PO in the Ewok village in Return of the Jedi telling the story we know so well in order to rally and inspire the Ewok troops in the battle against the Empire. So with all that in mind, what are we to make of the First Order? What are we to make of the resistance and of the conflict that drives the external plot of this movie? I think that the key to understanding the First Principles world-building intent that underlies The Force Awakens can be found in the first two paragraphs of the opening crawl. Quote, Luke Skywalker has vanished. In his absence, the sinister First Order has risen from the ashes of the Empire and will not rest until Skywalker, the last Jedi, has been destroyed. With the support of the Republic, General Leia Organa leads a brave resistance. She is desperate to find her brother Luke and gain his help in restoring peace and justice to the galaxy. The first paragraph of this crawl draws a definitive connection between Luke and the First Order. In his absence implies a causal relationship, and certainly the desire to find and destroy Luke confirms that idea. Then, in the second paragraph, we learn that this is Leia's fight. Sure, she's supported by the Republic, but her goal is not to destroy or to defeat the First Order, or not simply to destroy or defeat the First Order, but rather to find, to save and protect Luke, and thereby restore peace and justice to the galaxy. These causal implications are vitally important. Luke vanished, so the First Order arose, so Leia began to lead the Resistance, so that the First Order can be defeated or removed, and peace and justice can be restored. Leia's Resistance isn't a wing of the Republic military, whatever that may look like. This is an autonomous mission, and it is vitally on a small, personal scale. This movie isn't about politics, either the rebel conflict politics of the original trilogy or the urbane and urban political maneuvering of the prequel trilogy. This is a voluntary conflict undertaken by Leia's resistance forces, not a fight for survival or for freedom from tyranny. 
This is about a clash of ideologies, about, in a way that Star Wars has never been, the battle between the light and dark sides, between good and evil. From the titanic, galaxy-spanning excess of the Clone Wars and the execution of Order 66, the moment at which the Star Wars series reached its highest and largest point, we've tightened our focus to a couple of fighter squadrons and their ground support teams, and a single Star Destroyer and its legion of stormtroopers and squadrons of TIE fighters. I suspect, by the way, that the First Order isn't in the new canon expanded universe quite as bereft of infrastructure as this film might imply, but within the span of the movie, they're a defined and a containable foe, albeit one that is fantastically dangerous and fueled by a terrifying ideology. The field of battle is no longer the spires and the senate of Coruscant, but the frontier. This isn't Rome, this is the provinces, and that means that we're freed from the enormous weight and inertia of the Republic, or of the Empire. Consider the brief glimpse we get of the New Republic capital in the moments before dear Martha Jones, having unwisely abandoned the Doctor's TARDIS, is vaporized. What kind of story ends on a celebratory note because our plucky band of heroes have saved themselves, but failed to save billions, trillions, perhaps, of their fellow Republic citizens. This isn't an inconsistency, and this isn't a mistake. It may not work for you as a viewer of the film, you may be left cold by it, but we can allow no misreading of the text that suggests that this choice is accidental. It is so important, so deliberate, that, as we've seen, it is grounded in the opening crawl itself. This story isn't about the Republic, and it isn't about the Empire. It isn't about control of the galaxy. The very idea of control, as we saw in the original trilogy, and as we see here again, is the preserve of the dark side. Rather, this is about Luke and his legacy. This is about myth. And that's important because of Luke, and because of our understanding of the nature of the conflict between the Resistance and the First Order. They aren't fighting each other, or rather, they're fighting each other as a consequence of their primary goal. They're both pursuing Luke. They're both pursuing the Jedi. Ultimately, of course, that plot is overshadowed within the span of The Force Awakens by the immense destructive capability of Starkiller Base. Our focus must adjust to accommodate that. But while this movie may seem in its structure to echo A New Hope, and the original trilogy in general, its intent is very different. We are not throwing off the yoke of imperial tyranny, or as we did in the prequel trilogy, seeing freedom fall to tyranny. Here we're fighting for something that is at the same time much more personal, but also much more important. We're fighting the battle that Maz Kanata discusses with Rey. The endless, timeless, ever-changing, ever-fluid battle between the light side and the dark. We should observe, too, though this may be better suited to a lecture all of its own, that we achieve dramatic tension within that conflict, within this film, through both the act and the threat of terrorism. The First Order destroys the Republic by striking from a distance, an act of terror beyond the grasp of the human imagination. For all their talk of order and of authority, for all of their presumptive inheritance of the Empire's right to rule, the First Order is the insurgency. From the perspective of modern geopolitics and military composition, the resistance in striking back against Starkiller Base 
is less like the French resistance of the original trilogy than it is like SEAL Team 6. As I said, I think all those ideas could probably be expanded into full lectures, though it would probably take someone with a much more thorough grounding in military history and mechanism than I. What matters, though, is that we reset our sense of the galaxy and of the forces contained within it. Gone are the stately palaces of Naboo and the ordered politics of Coruscant and the Senate. Gone, too, is the monolithic brutality and the dominance of the Empire. What remains are fractured forces, personal forces, the resistance and the First Order, the gangs and the smugglers and the traders and petty tyrants and kings, I'm sure. This is again, in a way that it hasn't been to this point, the frontier, a galaxy in which things can once again be lost, can once again be discovered. So let's look first at FN-2187, our rebellious stormtrooper who rejects the brutality of the Empire and goes on the run, getting tangled up in a plot that has nothing to do with him at all, but which he nonetheless manages to contribute to and to ultimately help resolve through sheer heart, through sheer valor. Finn makes for an excellent audience surrogate, a POV character whose relative ignorance about the galaxy opens up a lot of possibilities for natural exposition. We get thrown into the action with Poe Dameron and with BB-8, but Finn is the character who gives us a handle on what's happening and provides invaluable structure to the first act of this story. I did, as a side note, have an interesting thought that while Finn is an excellent classic audience surrogate, a POV character in the classic form, Poe Dameron simultaneously works as a fan surrogate, as the voice of the person who loves and knows and appreciates Star Wars and is just so gosh darn excited to be here. That's one of the thoughts that I'll be working on the next time that I see the movie. So Finn achieves a spontaneous moment of awareness that changes his understanding of his place in the world. He struggles with it, though only for a relatively short period of time, because he's soon ready to escape with Poe and simply get away from the First Order, which opens up the first interesting complication in Finn's character. He doesn't want to kill. He doesn't want to be a tool of the authoritarian First Order. But his first response is not to fight. It's not to side with the resistance, but rather to flee. He doesn't believe, in an intuitive sense, that the First Order can be readily defeated, which, given the events of the film as they unfold, and broadly given our understanding of the nature of military power in the Star Wars universe, suggests that Finn, through the first act, is still laboring under conditioning and propaganda. It's not ideology in the broadest sense, but rather his specific relationship with Rey, that draws him back in. And that's important since the Rescue the Princess beat that we seem to be echoing from A New Hope is completely inverted by the absence of either political or ideological motivations or by a general sense of heroism, but rather, in this case, by the presence of a real friendship and affection. And ultimately, despite his heroism, Finn is cut down by Kylo Ren, which reminds us that the Star Wars universe is still a place of exceptional individuals. So that's the first act. You will rarely see a better second act transition than Han and Chewie's entrance into the Falcon. It's a moment and a line, and in that moment, in that line, the tone of the scene completely shifts. We get this rush of context and of insight 
Han appears to be his roguish self, the archetype with which we're all familiar, even if we've never seen Star Wars, even if we don't know this character. We recognize him immediately. But Han, too, is carrying an interesting complexity. We see fairly swiftly that this is a charade. This is a story that doesn't quite fit his experience anymore. He can't keep swindling his way across the galaxy because everyone knows who he is. He can't keep bouncing from calamity to calamity and escaping by the skin of his teeth because he's getting older and because that's just not who this Han Solo is anymore. That's obvious enough when we're dealing with the gangs on the freighter. It's actually explicit in the script when we're dealing with the gangs on the freighter. But by the time we get to Maz Kanata's, though, it's becoming clear that something just isn't right. He offers Rey a job, not, I believe, because she's innately special, but because she seems to know, to respect, and maybe even to love the Falcon, which has always been a quiet and underplayed part of Han's character, but a vital one. There's an understanding implicit in that moment that while he's regained his ship for good, as he proclaims, this isn't a situation that is going to last. This isn't a new status quo. It's a temporary respite. He can play the part of the scoundrel, but he's always going to be the rebel general who lost his son to the dark side of the Force. After offering Rey a job, they approach Maz's amazing tavern cantina castle, and he gives them a version of the Lando Calrissian on Bespin speech, foreshadowing difficulty and danger and treachery. But inside, Maz welcomes them immediately, asks after Chewbacca, offers them assistance. The danger doesn't come from within the bounds of Han's experience as a smuggler and a scoundrel, but rather the external threat of a First Order assault. Han just isn't the rogue he used to be. The world is not his world anymore, and we learn this specifically when Leia appears and marks the midpoint of Han's journey. Here, he can no longer pretend, and instead picks up the responsibilities he set aside years ago through pain and loss. Luke may be a Jedi, but Han is Ben's father. That leads irrevocably, inevitably, to the showdown on the Starkiller base and the final betrayal of his son. And so to Rey and our third act, a character who begins her story literally in the wreckage, in the aftermath of the stories that we know so well. The contrast with Luke is obvious. His simple life on Tatooine at the beginning of A New Hope was peaceful but boring, and he wanted desperately to escape. Rey's life is nothing like as comfortable, though she is sustained by the stories of the past rather than the future, as made evident by the rebel pilot doll and the helmet that she keeps in her home, the ruined Atat. Despite the discomfort and difficulty of her daily life, a discomfort and difficulty that seem to be growing daily, given her conversations with Unkar Plot, Rey doesn't want to leave. She doesn't dream Luke's dream of heroism and adventure and other places. Instead, she clings to the hope that her family will return for her. Her life, her vision, her beacon is in the past. Much has been made of Rey's family, therefore, but I think such speculation runs the risk of missing the point, because what we're doing is inverting Luke's desire to leave and finding the story within that. It's one thing to want to go, to look for, to search for, to freely accept the call to adventure, what happens when you do everything you can to avoid it? 
Nevertheless caught up in events, Rei leaves Jakku behind, experiences the Force Vision at Mazkanata's, flees into the forest and is ultimately captured by Kylo Ren. His attempted torture of her seems to awaken within her an awareness of her own gifts and abilities, which she then uses to escape. Ultimately, she faces Kylo Ren in the forests of the Starkiller base and defeats him. She then rescues Finn and sets off to find Luke Skywalker. It may be argued that Rey, within that structure, actually experiences three different, though certainly connected, awakenings. The Force Vision, which is involuntary, the torture scene with Kylo Ren, which is involuntary, and the mind trick on the Stormtrooper, which results in her escape, which is the first voluntary use of the Force that we see from her. That would be a classic three-beat, establishment, reinforcement, subversion. This would perhaps be the best time to note one of the key differences between The Force Awakens and A New Hope, one of the most important structural echoes that is conspicuous by its absence. The harmonious acceptance of and faith in The Force, which is such an important integral part of A New Hope, is absent from the primary plot resolution of The Force Awakens. And that's vital. That cannot go overlooked. The whole story of A New Hope, as previously discussed in this series, is the story of Luke's own relationship with the Force and the final acceptance of something beyond himself, something beyond his own desires. That is the single moment which brings victory, and is the single moment which defines that story. And that moment is absent from The Force Awakens. Rey has her <laughs> latter awakening, her moment of unification and harmony with the Force while dueling Kylo Ren, but it's connected not with the primary Starkiller-based plot, but with her own personal battle. Had Rey died in the snow, the day would still have been saved. The map to Luke would still have been completed. So while the beat is similar in shape, it's completely different in intent. We're standing in the same place, if you like, but we're facing a different direction. And though it's subtle, I don't think for a moment that Rey is safe from the temptation of the dark side of the Force. She has her moment of clarity and of harmony, certainly, but it devolves almost immediately into obvious rage and aggression. What she feels while dueling Kylo Ren as the Starkiller base falls apart around them is too clear and too purposeful, too resonant within the text of Star Wars to just be an actor's choice. That rage is too obvious. And that is, of course, the peril of the untrained Jedi. Too much power comes too easily, and the dark side is an ever-present temptation. We'll put a pin in that until, I suspect, episode 8. So each of our characters wakes, albeit in different ways. And look at what happens to each of those characters following their awakening. Finn moves from stability and order into a world of danger and moral, emotional, and physical conflict. Rey leaves behind her simple, albeit fairly unpleasant, existence on Jakku, and more importantly, the beacon-like hope that her family will return, and instead finds herself hunted, tortured, almost killed. And Han... Han pays the ultimate price for picking up the burden he set down so long ago. And yet, none of them, despite adversity, despite hardship, are the poorer for their experience. Even Han. Yes, he gave his life, but he gave his life doing something of fundamental importance, and he died 
being true to his best self. Han's death is a heroic one, just as Obi-Wan's was. Though, for all that, we must note that there was something untrue about their former lives, about the dreams of their restless sleep. Sin was trying to live the story of the First Order until he couldn't anymore, though that's a story that continues to haunt him through the rest of the movie. Arguably, I guess, up until the somewhat comedic and somewhat misjudged showdown with Captain Phasma. Rey was trying to live the life of the patient orphan on Jakku, a scavenger life. Han was trying to live the life of the smuggler, the rogue, his younger self, the fast-talking charmer without a care in the world. All three stories are false. All three false stories end with their awakenings and their ultimate achievement of what was waiting for them. Heroism and self-determination for Finn, family and the Force for Rey, and the last hope, do the right thing, never tell me the odds, death of Han Solo. So those are our three primary stories, and we leave them behind at the end of the movie to open up a new path, and it is no coincidence that we do so through the medium of a final awakening. From the moment the film begins, we are connected to the myth of Luke and the Rebellion. The quest for the map to find the missing Jedi is almost Arthurian, but we never let it entirely recede into the mist of metaphor or of legend. We keep it grounded. We keep it physical and present and immediate. In the first place, through Max von Sydow's lore son, Tekka, and then through Han himself. Tekka is a magnetic presence on screen through the opening movement of the story, and his reminders that he knew Leia before she was a general, she'll always be royalty to me, and that he knew Kylo Ren too, I knew where you came from before you called yourself Kylo Ren, he says, are important. They hint at stories both told and untold, and I can't be the only one who, upon hearing the words, she'll always be royalty to me, answered with a silent but fervent, yeah, me too. So we're connecting legend with truth in a very powerful way, and we're doing it right from the jump. That's true within the text itself, but it's also true within the reference, within the frame, the movie. The archetypal significance of Poe Dameron hiding the data inside BB-8 obviously echoes Leia and R2 from the beginning of A New Hope, though the intent, again, is different. Leia sends R2 toward her target. Poe Dameron sends BB-8 away into the desert. Again, we're standing in the same place, but we're facing in different directions. That connection between legend and truth continues through the first act, though the pendulum swings toward legend without an active grounding presence to remind our heroes that they're dealing with real people and real events. Luke Skywalker's name is said in hushed tones, and it works on us too. Here's the Millennium Falcon, the ship that felt like home, that defined the word cool for an entire generation. Then, with the arrival of Han and Chewbacca, we're abruptly grounded again. It's all true. That doesn't mean that it isn't a legend. That doesn't mean that this isn't magic. It just means that it's true, too. We get the same kind of echo with Luke's lightsaber, with Leia and with the Resistance base, and ultimately with the death of Han Solo, a man who embodied multiple legends, both to the residents of the Star Wars universe and to our own world. He finally succumbs to the truth of his own mortality, 
but becomes an even greater legend in the process. And it's impossible, as he falls, not to think of Obi-Wan's words. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. The legend that is Han Solo will remain undimmed, will be, if anything, made all the greater by his death on the Starkiller base. And then, back at the Resistance base, the battle won, R2 wakes. We might debate, both practically and thematically, symbolically, what woke R2 from his slumber. Was he simply on a timer? Had some specific set of conditions been met? Did he receive some kind of external signal? Was he touched by the Force? Ultimately, though, this final awakening leads Rey to her cause, to her quest, compels her to leave Finn, which wouldn't matter so much if we didn't know how important leaving is to her, and go on to find Luke. So she travels on the Falcon to the islands in the ocean, a place of dreams and of imagination, a liminal space that is a priori mythic and metaphysical to Rey, and thus to the audience, and the building of the anticipation, the ascent of the stairs, the leaving behind of the mundane world as exemplified by the Millennium Falcon, by Chewbacca, by R2, the climbing to greater heights into the realm of magic and myth, the climbing to the very gates of Olympus, and then there's Luke, just a man, just as real and aged and worn as he should be. The holding out of the lightsaber is the simplest, most expressive action that I can imagine. The unification of legend and of truth within and without, and it's perfect. The second time I saw the movie, I was leaving the theater in that hushed silence before anyone says anything, when an awestruck little girl behind me said to her parents, and Luke Skywalker didn't even say anything. If you fancy yourself a writer, as I have been known to from time to time, then try to come up with a line of dialogue that can add anything, anything, to that scene. I certainly can't. So this is a story about the legend of Luke Skywalker, about the legend of the Rebellion, about the legend of Star Wars. It is populated by characters defined by their own personal narratives, either those that they cling to, like Rey, like Kylo Ren, or those that constrain them, like Finn, like, arguably, Han Solo. It's a story that takes place in the light and in the context of stories of the Rebellion and the Republic, of the Empire and of Vader. Kylo Ren and the First Order see Vader's story and the story of the Empire as being left undone, though neither story, vitally, seems to be adequately understood. Vader's story was complete, it ended as it should, and the Empire's story wasn't about destruction, at least in the first instance, but about the preservation of authority and order. Would the Empire have destroyed the capital worlds of the Republic? You can't help but feel as though the Empire wouldn't have needed to. It understood the power of fear and the power of violence unmanifested, and the First Order, it would seem, has no such restraint. This is, then, a Star Wars story that is in part about Star Wars. It speaks to the legend, to the myth, to the power that stories have to shape and to define and to guide and to illuminate. It is, from a certain perspective, at least as much about what Star Wars means to Kasdan and to Abrams and an entire generation of fans as it is a story unto itself. What's amazing, though, 
is that it is also a complete and satisfying narrative that sets the stage for an ongoing story. To achieve either end would be impressive. To achieve both simultaneously is nothing short of astounding. And though I don't know how fully I want to endorse this idea right now, there certainly seems to be something of a connection between an awareness of the story that you're in and the Force itself. Why doesn't Han Solo want to know the odds? Why does he know that there's always a way to blow these things up? Why is it true, both literally and metaphorically, that while there's light, there's hope? Is the Force, which guides our steps, which surrounds and binds us, influenced by the stories we tell? Are the stories we tell influenced by the Force? Is that the root of the previously discussed notion of harmony? Perhaps. Perhaps. So, where does this leave us? Looking ahead to Episode 8 and a new, reinvigorated Star Wars universe, I mentioned earlier that shrinking the scale of the conflict and moving the action back to the frontier was important. And while it serves The Force Awakens rather well, the real reason that it matters is where we go next. The power structures and the politics of the Star Wars universe as we knew it have been swept away. There is now effectively no Republic, no Empire, no status quo. That makes the galaxy feel, perhaps for the first time since the Empire Strikes Back, like a new and dangerous place. Anything could be out there. So while I think that there is some legitimate criticism that The Force Awakens echoes too closely the original trilogy in the movement of its primary conflict, if not meaningfully in its structure and certainly not meaningfully in its intent, it might also be argued that this was a necessary step. From A New Hope on, each movie has made the galaxy smaller, has made the powers greater, has reduced the arcs and the conflicts, made them more fundamental in principle and in practice. The accretion of detail and explanation and resolution which led us in the first and most harmless instance to Jabba's palace and the second Death Star in Return of the Jedi, and which then fundamentally changed the tone of the movies in the prequel trilogy, all that has now been swept away. I have no idea where the next movie is going to go, and I find that prospect thrilling. I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture that I would discuss briefly some ways in which the movie doesn't work, some of the imperfections that can clutter one's understanding of and response to the story, and I do think that when the DVD set is released, there will probably be some kind of Star Wonks live tweet. But briefly for now, a nitpicky rundown. The lightspeed jump through the Starkiller shield by the Millennium Falcon is so hurried and unnecessary and so potentially harmful to our understanding of the mechanics of the assault on the second Death Star in Return of the Jedi that it completely knocked me out of the movie for a while. The egregious underuse of Captain Phasma and the insubstantial and atonal explanation attached to the lowering of the shields also didn't work for me. I'm also a little bothered by the way the X-Wings move in the atmosphere, because I'd always imagined them being faster and more precise and less floaty than they seem to be during the attack on Maz Kanata's. And then, and then, there's Kylo Ren, and by extension, Supreme Commander Snoke. In principle, I love the idea of Ben Solo training under his Uncle Luke, then falling to the temptation of the dark side. In practice, I feel that Adam Driver's performance varies wildly, from engaging and watchable, absolutely, to flat and sulky. 
he's no Hayden Christensen, let's be clear about that, but he's also, to me, the weakest link in what is an otherwise excellent chain of performances. I also wasn't particularly compelled by Snoke, either by the name or by the performance, which seemed predictable in its intent and more than a little Gollum-like in its performance. I also would have liked to have seen a little more interiority from Rey and from Finn, and a better insight into their moment-to-moment -moment motivations, all of which seemed, to me, to be consistent with my understanding of the character, but which may, nonetheless, benefit from some added specificity, some added personalization. What exactly motivates Finn to leave Maz Kanata's? What exactly motivates Rey to do the same after her Force vision? These are explanations that seem to have clear answers in the text, fear of the First Order, in the first case, fear of pretty much everything, in the second, but they both could have withstood a little more exploration. But these criticisms, and the dozen or so even more minor points that I have with the movie, do little to detract from my enjoyment and my appreciation of this story. It isn't perfect, so I hate it, is an immature piece of criticism that is all too prevalent in this day and age. I can say with certainty that I'm not done with The Force Awakens. I think I'll go and see it again while it's still in theaters, and it will be a day one purchase when it's available on Blu-ray. Right now, though, it ranks alongside the best that Star Wars has ever had to offer. But perhaps more importantly, has reinvigorated my faith and my hope in this universe. Episode 8 and the other movies taking place in this new era of a galaxy far, far away are all going to have a lot to live up to. But I can't wait. All of which is to say, I suppose, that this isn't, as previously mentioned, the end of the story and Star Wars seminar series. I will certainly revisit The Force Awakens with another lecture when I have my own copy that I can analyze more thoroughly. And if you guys have questions or topics that you'd like me to discuss, then by all means get in touch, and I'll be glad to do an extended Q&A show. I know that I have a handful of emails waiting for me already. If you sent me a message about The Force Awakens in the last couple of weeks, I've saved them all in a special folder so I could watch the movie and formulate my response and record this lecture without any external influence. But I'm going to catch up now, and for what it's worth, I also have a lot of podcast episodes and blog posts to catch up on, many of which I'm certain will assert either or both of the two most common fan theories which have popped up in the last few weeks. I don't want to get into this too deeply right now. Perhaps this would work better for a Q&A show, but I'm going to assert here and now, on the record, that Supreme Leader Snoke is not the aforementioned Darth Plagueis, and much more importantly, Rey is not Luke Skywalker's daughter. Given the way that the movie plays straight with Kylo Ren's parentage, given the questionable timescales involved, given the lengths the movie has gone to to establish and emphasize the scale of the new galactic frontier, Given that it is by far the most obvious and thus least interesting reveal about Rey's past, given specific lines from Han, from Maz, from Leia's general reluctance to rescue Rey from the Starkiller base, and most importantly, given the necessity of an explicit desire to open up new potential stories, new characters, new relationships, and new ideas, Rey is not Luke Skywalker's daughter. I completely understand the fan desire to fit all the pieces together so that they make sense, but we might as well speculate that Poe Dameron is Han Solo's illegitimate son. He is the best pilot around, after all, and he certainly has roguish charm to spare. This movie has demonstrated a desire to make the galaxy feel large again, to feel infinite again. We're getting whole movies dedicated to other stories that happen within this space. 
Between that and the conscious, measured reveal of what happened to Ben Solo, I think we're done looking backward. The answer that I expect to get about Rey's parentage, no kidding, is that it doesn't matter. They didn't come back. She left Jakku. Small tragedies happen in the big, wide world. So that's that. I've planted my flag. I'm sure this will come back to haunt me in the months and years to come. Let's see how that works out. Guys, thank you so, so much for listening and for spreading the word about Story and Star Wars. If you have enjoyed this series, if you would like to see it continue, not just with The Force Awakens and with Episode 8 and 9, but with perhaps a discussion of Rogue One, the subsequent episodes, the anthology movies, perhaps even the novels, the comics, the TV shows of the expanded universe, then get in touch and let me know. Help spread the word, and please take a moment to leave a rating, leave a review on iTunes. You don't have to write a comprehensive review, since so few people read those things. So maybe just go to iTunes and tell me this. R2-D2 or BB-8? You can find the link to the iTunes page in the show notes accompanying this podcast. And if you have enjoyed this approach to Star Wars and would like to see your favorite movies and TV shows discussed in a similar way, then we have all the podcasts you could ever need over on storywonk.com, where right now we have shows dedicated to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, to Veronica Mars, to Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series, as well as a general pop culture podcast and podcasts dedicated to the craft of writing. That's it for this lecture, and that is it for Story and Star Wars for now. As I said, send in your questions to podcast at storywonk.com. If there's enough interest, I'll be glad to put together a Q&A session in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime... I've been Alistair Stevens. Thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you.